The 2014 scientific miniseries Cosmos featured an episode entitled When Knowledge Conquered Fear. Utilizing the research and writing of Carl Sagan and Andrian and their book Comet, this episode detailed the early relationship our ancestors had with the ancient and icy long-haired stars or comets that occasionally wandered into the Earth's skies. Our forebears looked to the skies. Even without technology or any actual scientific understanding, our ancestors learned that the movement of the stars revealed patterns, and those patterns could help them predict and understand the seasons in order to coordinate movements and migrations. Now, while their research may seem primitive by today's standards, these early people were in some way collecting and analyzing data in their own context, using their experience and reason to learn and grow. And when a strange long-haired star or a star with a tail moved across their skies, however, context, experience, and reason ceased to be part of the equation. Our ancestors were afraid of comets. They didn't understand them, and in their fear, they took comets personally and poorly. Their fear of not knowing caused them to abandon their experiences. After all, none of them were ever actually harmed by a comet in any way. Still, virtually every ancient culture for which we have a record interpreted comets as bad signs, omens, messages of anger and destruction from the gods. Context and reason went out the window as the appearances of comets were blamed for the suffering and disastrous events our ancestors experienced in their lives. In fact, our word disaster comes to us from the ancient Greek description of these bad stars, these disaster stars, comets carrying doom and destruction. In the minds of our forebearers, a comet showed up and bad things happened. End of story. That is the pattern they recognized and understood. They wanted to connect the two events. In fact, they were certain that these mysterious bad stars had something to do with what they were experiencing. Carl Sagan and Andrian offer some examples. To the Maasai of East Africa, a comet meant famine. To the Zulu in the South, it meant war. To the Agat people of the West, it meant disease. To the Jaga of Zaire, specifically smallpox. To their neighbors, the Luba, a comet foretold the death of a leader. According to astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, the ancient Chinese were remarkably systematic in their efforts to interpret comets. Starting in roughly 1400 BC, they began recording and cataloging the apparitions of comets. To them, a three-tailed comet meant calamity for the state, while a four-tailed comet signaled an epidemic was coming. Now, before we all get on our high horse and assume that this is just evidence of how simple and silly our ancestors were, we should be honest about the fact that humans misunderstanding comets is not only part of our ancient past. In the early 1900s, after spectroscopic analysis revealed that the tail of Halley's comet contained toxic gas, a supposedly enlightened public spent good money on anti-comet pills, gas masks, and comet-proof umbrellas. 
I've never actually seen one, but I would assume that a comet-proof umbrella is pretty heavy. In 1997, 39 members of the Heaven's Gate religious movement committed mass suicide in response to the appearance of the Hale-Bopp comet, stating on their website, our 22 years of classroom here on Earth is finally coming to a conclusion. Hale-Bopp brings our graduation from the human evolutionary level. Perched on our postmodern technological thrones, we may believe that we've mastered the universe, that we would never do something as silly as mistake a comet for a messenger of doom. But is that really true? Is this kind of behavior simply part of our developmental past, or do we still wrestle with misguided certainty, convincing ourselves that we can read the signs in the stars, that unlike our ancestors, we can see what's truly going on. Here's how the Cosmos episode when knowledge conquered fear summed it up. The human talent for pattern recognition is a two-edged sword. We're especially good at finding patterns, even when they aren't really there. We hunger for significance, for signs that our personal existence is of special meaning to the universe and to that end, we are all too eager to deceive ourselves and others. Ouch. That conclusion stings a bit. That doesn't seem to just be about comets or our ancient past. It seems much bigger and much more like a present and persistent condition. We hunger for significance, for signs that our personal existence is of special meaning to the universe. To that end, we are all too eager to deceive ourselves and others. The truth is, I can see myself in that quote. I can see myself among our comet-fearing ancestors. I do hunger for significance and special meaning. It would feel good, important even, to know what was written in the stars and to be able to tell others. I've seen patterns that weren't really there. I have been known to abandon context and reason when I'm afraid. If given a choice, I'll take knowing over not knowing every time. I know humility is supposed to be a virtue or the beginning of wisdom or something like that, but certainty just feels so dang good. I'd rather be certain than humble. And I suspect I'm not alone in that. I suspect that we all share this condition, a preference for certainty. Some might even call it universal. I'd like, to you, I'd like to invite you to consider the possibility that this universal condition lies at the heart of the books of First and Second Samuel. Samuel tells an epic story. In fact, it was too big to fit on a single scroll when it was originally transcribed, so they wrote it on two scrolls, and those two scrolls became known as First and Second Samuel. We may not realize it, but the books of Samuel are filled with stories that seem to expose certainty as an illusion. These recognizable stories about Israel's search for significance include the story of the Israelites, who were certain that if they carried the Ark of the Covenant into battle, they could never lose to the Philistines until they did, and even lost the Ark of the Covenant in the process. 
Or another story about those same Israelites who, despite warnings from God and the prophet Samuel, became certain that what they really needed was a king and wound up with a tortured and tragic series of monarchs. Or another story about those same Israelites being certain that the giant and arrogant Philistine warrior Goliath could never be defeated in battle until he was slain by a young shepherd boy with a slingshot. From the birth and calling of Samuel as a prophet to the rise and fall of King Saul to the rise and fall of King David, certainty is repeatedly exposed and humbled in the epic story Samuel is telling. One could say it's a pattern. Even the story of anointing David, the young shepherd boy that would eventually slay Goliath and become king, seems to be on some level exposing the illusion of certainty. As this particular piece of the epic story opens up, Saul is king. To be extremely clear, Saul is the king God told Samuel to anoint as the first king of the Israelites. Now don't miss that. Both God and Samuel had been certain about Saul's kingship until they weren't. As king, Saul consistently demonstrated his dishonesty, arrogance, and an amazing ability to sidestep responsibility for his mistakes. His tenure as king had gone so wrong that the last verse of chapter 15 actually says these words. God regretted making Saul king over Israel. Now, I'm not certain, but friends, I want to suggest to you the possibility that this sentence is a big deal. In fact, this might be the most important sentence of the whole story. God regretted making Saul king over Israel. That is not a throwaway line. That is a comet blazing across the sky. It's not like all the other stars. It demands our attention and consideration. God regretted making Saul king over Israel. The creator is no longer certain about the previous choice of Saul as king. The source of all things is experiencing regret. God is sorry. The epic of Samuel that exposes the illusion of certainty in story after story even says that God backs away from certainty. That is a cosmos reorienting idea, one that confronts me with the notion that maybe I don't have it all figured out either. Now, before going any further, let's take a brief moment to acknowledge our discomfort. You can all take a deep breath. We're going to be okay. Depending on our background or our exposure to the church, it's very possible that the doctrine and dogma we've been taught don't have room for a God that experiences regret or uncertainty. The thought that God could ever want to do over, that the creator would take a mulligan, that the source of all things could be less than certain may tempt us to perform all sorts of mental gymnastics and theological contortions. This may make us extremely uncomfortable. But rather than performing those gymnastics and contortions, please allow me to suggest the possibility that our discomfort may be precisely the point. 
if reading or hearing God regretted making Saul king over Israel makes me uncomfortable, perhaps that's what it's there to do. Perhaps that sentence is there to grab my attention and ask me if I am certain about my certainty. After all, if God is pushing back from certainty, why would I be moving toward it? Do I really understand all that I think I understand? Or am I finding patterns that aren't really there, all too eager to deceive myself and others? Do I truly see well enough to be certain? Seeing is at the heart of this story. The Hebraic word ra'ah means to see or to understand. And ra'ah gets used in some form ten times in this story. That's ten times in 13 verses. As the sons of Jesse are brought before Samuel for consideration of kingship, Samuel ra'ahs each one. He sees them, trying to size them up to understand which one should be king. We might even say Samuel looks for a recognizable pattern. As Eliab, the first son to enter the picture, passes by, Samuel says, surely this is the one. Surely as in, I've got it. I've spotted the pattern. I can see it now. I understand. I'm certain. Yet rather than anointing Eliab in certainty, God stops Samuel. Eliab is rejected, and Samuel is told the eternal does not see as humans see. Now, to Samuel's credit, there was a pattern there to be recognized. The story indicates that Eliab was impressive. He was big and strong, just like King Saul. Samuel recognizes that pattern, seems to forget God's regret about Saul, and is ready to anoint Eliab. In fact, he's sure about it. But God, the eternal one, the one who begins this story by moving away from being sure, by regretting certainty, does not ra'ah as humans ra'ah. God does not see as humans see. And just in case we missed that lesson the first time, it is repeated as seven sons pass before Samuel. Seven sons. Seven opportunities for Samuel's certainty to rise. Seven opportunities for him to recognize the kingly pattern. And seven rejections. Seeing as God sees is apparently not what Samuel is there to do. God does not see as humans see. You know, if we zoom out a bit, this story of Samuel's doesn't seem to be an isolated incident. The theme of humans wanting to see as God sees, to know what God knows, to grab a hold of some divine certainty is a repeated and recognizable pattern that blazes across the skies of numerous biblical stories. In the 33rd chapter of Exodus, Moses asks God, show me your ways. If I have found favor in your sight, show me your glory, I pray. Moses asks to see as God sees. But God replies, I will make all my goodness pass before you. But you cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. The eternal continued, there is a place by me where you can stand on the rock. 
And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I'll take my hand away, and you'll see my back, but you won't see my face. The word ra'ah is repeated four times in this passage from the Exodus. Moses wanted to see as God sees, to ra'ah God's glory, to understand as God understands which is a pretty interesting connection given the repeated usage of ra'ah in Samuel's story. Once more, there is another word that connects the two stories, the Hebraic verb avar. Avar means to pass by or pass before. Three times the word avar is used to describe the presence of God passing by Moses. And three times the word avar is used to describe the sons of Jesse passing by Samuel. Moses wanted to ra'ah, to see and understand the glory of God, but as it passes before him as it avars, he cannot see as God sees. Samuel wanted to ra'ah, to see and understand as God does, but as Jesse's sons pass before him as they avar, He cannot see as God sees. I submit to you that the writer of Samuel did not choose these words by accident. There is a pattern, a recurring theme, a returning apparition that repeatedly reminds hearers and readers of these stories that humans do not see as God sees. Incidentally, when Samuel is told God does not see as humans see, The Hebraic word translated as as humans is Adam. Adam as in Adam and Eve. Adam is the Hebraic word for humanity. God does not ra'ah as Adam ra'ahs. God does not see as humans see. One could argue that this pattern goes all the way back to the beginning, to the garden. To Adam and Eve, wanting to see as God sees, to know and understand what God knows. We hunger for significance, for signs that our personal existence is of special meaning to the universe. To that end, we are all too eager to deceive ourselves and others. In a 1999 study, social psychologists David Dunning and Justin Kruger studied and documented what is now referred to as the Dunning-Kruger effect. The Dunning-Kruger effect is a form of cognitive bias, a way our thinking misleads us in an attempt to simplify information or make sense of things. It's what happens in our brains when we fail to recognize our limits. Rather than face and acknowledge our lack of ability in a given area or on a certain topic, we convince ourselves that we are people of high ability when in fact we're not. Imagine a scenario where we are confronted with an overwhelming amount of information where we're in over our heads, uncertain, ill-equipped to make decisions, maybe even afraid. Instead of seeing ourselves as beginners with a limitless capacity to learn, we convince ourselves that we're experts. Rather than resting into not knowing, 
we determine that we actually do know. That is the Dunning-Kruger effect. The original title of the Dunning-Kruger study was Unskilled and Unaware of It, which is an epic title in and of itself. But it's the subtitle that I really think sticks the landing. The subtitle of their study was How Difficulties in Recognizing One's Own Incompetence Lead to Inflated Self-Assessments. Friends, these titles would work in the Bible. I submit to you, the book of Genesis, how difficulties in recognizing one's own incompetence lead to inflated self-assessments. Or the book of Samuel, unskilled and unaware of it. The truth is, these titles, just like the stories of Genesis, Exodus, and Samuel, point to something universal, something with which we all struggle. I do these things. I resist recognizing my own incompetence. I inflate my self-assessment, choosing the illusions of certainty, expertise, and control. I am often unskilled and unaware of it. Dunning and Kruger could have saved some time just by studying me. When they were doing their study, I was 25 years old. I was probably at the peak of being an expert. Stacy and I hadn't even had kids yet. I had no idea how clueless I was, but I had certainty. I could have picked a king or told you exactly what a comet meant without any hesitation. That, at least in part, is the power of these stories. They're character studies offered to any and all readers and listeners, standing invitations to truly see and understand ourselves. Eve. Adam, Moses, Saul, Samuel, David, the Israelites, they're not simple historical details, they're us. They're mirrors into which you and I are invited to look and see ourselves. And if we'll take the time to truly see as the reflections pass before us, patterns will emerge. Patterns that warn us how difficult and painful it is for experts to learn and how much damage we do to ourselves and others in the process. Patterns that remind us that only not knowing can lead to discovery. Only humility and curiosity yield transformation. Patterns that point us away from growth-stunting certainty and toward a journey of development that can launch only in the heart and mind of a beginner. We all hunger for significance, for signs that our existence is of special meaning to the universe. From the garden to the exodus, from the kings of Israel to the prince of peace, our story repeatedly testifies to the tragic power we possess to enslave ourselves Uncertainty, self-inflated expertise, and the illusion of control prevent us from seeing what truly passes before us. We don't have to explain every comet, every disaster in our lives. We don't have to recognize and anoint kings that we never even needed in the first place. We don't have to deceive ourselves and others into believing we are certain. We can rest in not knowing, 
in humility, in being a beginner. We can rest because these stories, the same universal stories that confront the very real limitations of our sight, also declare there is one who does not see as we see. One who walked out of the garden with us. One that delivers us from slavery, goes before us in the wilderness, and invites us into the promised land because our lives mean something. One that will always stand and wait, refusing to sit down until even the most marginalized, least likely of candidates is truly seen, accepted, and anointed. One that knows every star in the skies and every hair on our head. One that loves us, is for us, and is with us, all of us, even when we can't see it. One who declares with the very cosmos and every comet it contains that you are significant. We hunger for something we already have. Something we've always had. You are significant. Your existence means something. You are loved. If you must be certain of something, be certain of that. 